Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 14. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of Son are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are on the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's say amen together, church. Amen. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to the passage that was just read as we finish up the book of Ecclesiastes. Hi, Lynette. Well, it's good to be with all of you today. Uh, we finish up Ecclesiastes today. It's been quite a journey. Today we finish up this great book about life and death, about meaning and meaninglessness, about vanity and the fear of God. And the central theme of chapter 12, maybe you sensed it as George is reading, the central theme of this chapter is death. Gird up your loins, Harvest Decatur. It's going to be one of those messages. It's going to be pretty intense, but I hope that you'll see by the end of it that there's hope for us after death. Now, some of you might be saying right now, even as I say that central theme here is death, I say, well, I'm 25 years old, Pastor Tony. What do I need to worry about that for? I'm fit as a fiddle. Well... Martin Luther said this, he said, it's good for us to invite death into our presence when it is still at a distance and not on the move. It's good to think about it, even if it's maybe some days, by the way, you're never promised another day in this world, right? But even if you are young, even if you are fit as a fiddle, it's good for you to think about this, to, to reckon with death while you still have some time to live. So that you can live your life more purposefully and more profitably, knowing that it eventually will come to an end. The title of today's message is, We'll All Be Dead Soon. <laughs> we'll all be dead soon. Therefore, four things. Here's the first, write these down. We'll all be dead soon, therefore remember your creator, says Solomon. 
Solomon says in verse one, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Notice how Solomon specifically emphasizes how young people need to remember their creator. Why does he, why does he fixate here on young people? Because young people have a tendency to forget their creator and they forget too that death is imminent for all of us. That's why he needs to emphasize this. Young people have a tendency to feel invincible. And unstoppable. I felt that way when I was younger. And so they need this little reminder. And, and Solomon, if you remember at the end of chapter 11, he's just talked to the youth. He's just talked to young people. And he said, rejoice in your youth. Rejoice. You know, make the most of your young days. It's good for you to rejoice and enjoy your youth. But he also warns young people, don't use your youth to chase sin. Because for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That's chapter 11, verse 9. So enjoy your youth, but don't use your youth to chase sin because you will be judged for it. Solomon stays with that theme of youth here in chapter 12, and he says this. Remember also the creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. There will come a day in your life when life is hard. And you're ready to die. The days will become evil. They will become onerous and arduous. And you'll start longing for eternity. That day is coming. And what Solomon is saying here is don't wait till then to remember your creator. But because, because by then your life is just about over. You're better off right now embracing this and living your life for him so that you can use your years of strength and vitality for a valuable purpose in this life. Look, I'll tell you, I love, I love deathbed conversion stories. I do. One of my best friends led his dad to the Lord on his deathbed. And I praised God with him when I heard that. That's amazing. Here's this man who lived 70, 80 years and then on his deathbed came to Christ. Praise the Lord. God give us more of those. But you know what's better than a deathbed conversion? Somebody who gets saved early in life and lives their life for the Lord. That's better. That's why we have this thing at Harvest called Harvest Kids. Where we're making disciples of our young people. That's why we have Harvest Students where we're making disciples of our teenagers, teaching them to love Christ and to serve Christ and to use their lives purposefully now, hoping that they have many, many more years ahead of them to follow Christ and to be an influence for Christ. Solomon continues in verse 2. He says, remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. These verses describe and metaphor the prospects of aging light starts to dim as you get older your capacity for joy and for vigor in life starts to darken and the clouds return after the rain meaning there's no sun in the sky anymore you know how after like a really great rain when you when you get a big thunderstorm that comes through and then the sun starts to shine. You can see everything so crisply and clearly. You know, you know how that's like? When I lived in Chicago, I loved those days when the thunderstorms would come through because it would, it would take all of that smog and all of that haze and just take it away. And you could see the Chicago skyline clearly. I love days like that. Well, what Solomon is saying is there, there will come a day in your life where even after it rains, the clouds won't dis dissipate. No more sunshiny days for you anymore. It's like Narnia. You know, it's always winter and never Christmas. And you start, you start longing for eternity. Things don't get any better. And you long to be free of this, this present world. You long to be free of this present body with its limitations. This is sad, Pastor Tony. I know it is. This is a Genesis 3 world that we live in. We brought this on ourselves. And we've got to go through this. And remember what Martin Luther said. It's good for us to invite death into our presence when it's still at a distance and not on the move. So, you know, the grim reaper's coming for us. Don't let him sneak up on you. Get ready. Write this down as number two in your notes. We'll all be dead soon, therefore. Number one, remember your creator. Number two, anticipate your return. 
Anticipate your return. You might say, return to what, Pastor Tony? Well, we'll come back to verse 3, but just skip down to verse 7 for a second. Because this is what the, the whole passage is driving towards. Solomon says, the dust returns to the earth as it was. Solomon's talking about death there and how our bodies expire. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Your body, this body, your body, will return from whence it came. And there's a sense in which, you know, all bodies, all of our bodies will get cremated eventually, okay? We'll all turn to dust eventually. You know, if I, some of y'all have asked me, you know, burial or cremation, Pastor Tony, which is it? Wait, what should I do? And I'll tell you, because you asked me, <laughs> I prefer burial. I do. Cremation is, that's what pagan Vikings did before they were Christianized, burn their bodies. So I, I like the symbolism of being buried. You go into the ground. It's like a plant. You get planted. Jesus comes back, resurrected from the ground. I like that. But, you know, I'm not going to pitch a fit on that if you decide to get cremated. We're all going to get cremated eventually, whether we go on the ground or we do it beforehand. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We were made from dust. And we go back to dust. Our bodies do. And yet at the same time, verse 7, your body will return from whence it came, even as your spirit, look at verse 7, returns to God who gave it. That's the point here. Let's go back to verse 3 and let's kind of gear up for that climax in verse 7 now. Look at, look at verse 3. Notice how in verse 3 the sentence continues. Solomon is still talking about why we need to remember the Creator in the days of our youth. It's because our youth won't last. And then he starts describing how we're going to age using some really vivid metaphor, uh, metaphors. This, is, this whole section here is, is very artistic. It's very poetic. And it's beautiful. Here's what he says. He says, in the days, verse 3, when the keepers of the house tremble. What's he talking about there? Well, what are, what are the keepers of the house? Those are your hands. As you age, your arms, they start to tremble, right? There's, there's a picture here in verses 3 through 5 of an old house. And the old house is growing old, and the people inside the house are, are used as a kind of picture of what our body's going to do as it ages, and, and the, the keepers of the house start to tremble. When I was in Croatia once, I was traveling with my father-in-law through the mountains of Croatia, and he's got the shakes, you know. And so we're taking these hairpin turns through the mountains of Croatia, and you can look down next to the car, and there's like a thousand feet below and I was just hoping that we'd get through that alive, you know, <laughs> me and Sonia and Alistair, you know, someday I'll have the shakes. That's coming on me someday. Look at the middle of verse three and the strong men are bent. What does that mean? Well, as you start to age, gravity gets the best of you and you kind of, you hunch, right? My dad's about, well, he used to be six foot four inches. Now he's about six foot three inches. And I'm, I'm six, foot, six foot one and a half, six two. So I told him the other day, I'm going to catch you here pretty soon. <laughs> this keeps up. The problem is my body's starting to hunch a little bit. I don't think I'll ever catch him. And the grinders cease because they are few. Look at verse three. What are your grinders? Your teeth, right? You start to lose your teeth. And that was especially true in the ancient world without dental care. You know, you start to lose your teeth. You start to lose your joy of food. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. What's that talking about? Your eyes start to lose sight. Your eyesight starts to dim. You get cataracts and glaucoma. You got to go to the doctor and get some spectacles because you can't see up at the pulpit. Right, Paul Roberts? Huh? Yes, 
My day is coming. I get it. Verse 4, and the doors on the street are shut. What are the doors? Ears. You start to become hard of hearing. There's irony in that statement because you hear some of the stuff you don't want to hear, and then you don't hear some of the stuff you want to hear. That's what he talks about here. The doors of the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. There's people outside working, and you, you can't hear it. You're not part of it. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of songs are brought low. You can't hear beautiful music, the, the daughters of song, but you can hear the birds in the morning and it makes you get up early. And, and what's, what's true as you get older and older? You, you get up earlier and earlier, don't you? Because you sleep so lightly as you age. I, I don't know about you, but I, I fantasize about sleeping like I did when I was a teenager. I could sleep through a factory explosion when I was a teenager. Now I hear a squirrel crack a nut in my backyard. I'm like, what was that? What was that? Something happening. How's a cat? Right? So you hear some things that you don't want to hear, and then you don't hear some things that you really want to hear. That's the irony of aging. And you get up earlier and earlier. The birds, I mean, that might sound like a pleasant thought. The birds are chirping in the morning. But you get a little older, you're like, why are the birds chirping? Why can I hear that? I heard a story this last week. Tommy Nelson was talking about this old couple that used to go to bed really early and get up really early. You know how it is as you age. And they went to bed at like 6 o'clock every night. And he said that once on daylight savings time, they went to bed really early. It was like five o'clock and they slept so long that they saw the sun. They awoke to the sun and they got out of bed and they're like, Hey, we overslept, you know, and they got up and then they're making breakfast and they're starting the day. And what they found out is that the sun was on the wrong side of the sky. They'd only slept for like an hour or two. And then they were awakened by the sunset, not the sunrise. They just went back to bed. You're laughing because it's true, right? <laughs> Look at verse 5. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. What's the great fear of people as they age? They might fall. Your body doesn't handle ice or stairs like it used to. You lose your sense of balance. You, use, you lose that sense of equilibrium. The almond tree blossoms. What's that talking about? Well, in ancient Israel, when the almond tree blossoms, it turns white. So this is a reference to your hair. It starts to, to get white as you age, right? You might say, well, gray hair is a crown of glory, Pastor Tony. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It's also a portent that you are closer to the grave. The grasshopper drags itself along. What's that talking about? You, you kind of limp, right, as you get older? And, you know, you've had hip surgery on this hip, but not this one, so you kind of list in one direction as you get a little older, like a grasshopper dragging itself along, and desire fails. Desire fails. This is a reference, by the way, to sexual vitality. The word for desire here is the word used for a caperberry. And in ancient Israel, the caperberry was thought to have aphrodisiacal powers. And so you take the, the caperberry and you're vigorous. Well, after a while, that doesn't work anymore. And that's another reason to enjoy your wife in your youth. Look at the end of verse 5. Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. In other, word, in other words here, your funeral is on the way. People are gathering already. The mourners are ready to mourn you. What's the big idea of what Solomon is describing here? He's describing the long, steady march towards death. This world is not our home. We age. We get older. And we die. And we can't live here forever. We can't live here forever. 
And by the way, that's, a good, that's one of the good things about aging. It reminds you that this, this world's not our home and that there's a better home awaiting us. That's, that's one reason to praise the Lord whenever you're limping and you, you feel that pain from that knee surgery and you're like, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm getting a new body someday. Right? And by the way, let me say this. For, can I give you some advice? Those of you listening online, let me give you some advice. If you find the fountain of youth, let's say Ponce de Leon actually found it in Florida or wherever. If you find it, let me give you some advice. Don't drink from it. Who wants to live in this world forever? I don't want to. I got something better coming than this. I don't want to live for, and that's why, by the way, that's why the Lord put the tree of life on ice and he blocked people from getting to it. They can't live forever in this world. This world's fallen. And, And God roped that off. You know what? He's bringing it back. The tree of life. Read Revelation 21 through 22. And we'll get to partake of that. But not now. Not the Lord needs to recreate our world. Second Peter chapter three, Revelation twenty through twenty-two. Look at verse six. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. These are all metaphors for death, right here. I mean, in in. This is the ancient equivalent to kick the bucket, okay? Verse 6. Or bought the farm. Whoever came up, why is that bad, buying the farm? Oh, he bought the farm. Oh, that's good. No, it's bad. Why is it bad? (laughs) Bite the big one. Who came up with that one? We're so primitive in English, right? In, In Hebrew, they're more sophisticated. They don't have those crass euphemisms. They have these beautiful euphemisms the silver cord is snapped the golden bowl is broken the pitcher is shattered at the fountain the wheel is broken at the cistern and the ESV study bible talks about how all of these instruments the bowl the pitcher the well they're all they're all water receptacles right they're all used to to gather water and what what's being described here is that water the symbol of life is gone you can't partake of it anymore and life is ending and that's reinforced in verse 7 and And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, verse 7, there's all this metaphor before verse 6. There's all this even bordering on allegory as Solomon is describing aging and and eventually death. I just want you to know that verse 7 is not metaphor. This actually happens. Our bodies actually do return to the earth. And the word that Solomon uses here for dust is the Hebrew afar. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2, verse 7. When the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, the afar of the ground. Like I said, we're all going to be cremated eventually. From ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We're going back into the ground. We're going back to the dust. So man's body returns to dust even as the spirit goes to God. That is so important. Because the Old Testament In the Old Testament understanding of death, it was that the believer and the unbeliever are both held by God for final judgment in Sheol. They are both held by God. And in the New Testament, we know that the spirit of both believers and believers, unbelievers and believers are both resurrected, some to eternal life, some to eternal death. We all get resurrected. Those of us who are believers, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, will receive new bodies at the resurrection We'll enter into the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. We'll live with the Lord forever and ever and ever. Unbelievers likewise will be resurrected. They'll be resurrected on the last day for judgment and cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Even in the Old Testament, Daniel 12, 1 through 2, those who sleep in the dust afar. There's that same word again. Those who go back to the dust, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt. Solomon may not have known all of these minute details about life and death and eternity 3,000 years ago when he wrote this, but he knows enough. He knew enough 
back then to know that we are eternal creatures and we're going to live forever somewhere. We're going to live in the presence of the Lord or we're going to live away from the Lord forever and ever. He knew enough to know that. He said earlier, God has put eternity into man's hearts. So I don't want to Christianize Solomon or make, make it seem like he's preaching New Testament doctrine here. He didn't know all of God's plan for redemption and eternity, but he knew enough to anticipate our return to God. He knew enough to tell us that we need to prepare for eternity because life is short. And eternity is racing towards us. So he says in verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. If that sounds familiar, it's because he said the same thing in chapter 1, verse 2. Hevel hevelim. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Meaning that life under the sun is fleeting. Not meaningless, it's fleeting. It's fleeting. It's vaporous. It comes and it goes. We age, our bodies break down, and then we die. And this life will come to an end probably sooner than you anticipate. Are you ready for the end? Are you ready for eternity? You can't take anything in this world with you. It's vanity. You can't even take your own body with you. It's got to stay. One of his novels, Walker Percy wrote this, and he was talking about unbelievers and, and kind of how they can't seem to reckon with this, the, the eternal existence that awaits us. And he said this, you can read this on the screen. He said, the present day unbeliever is crazy because he finds himself born into a world of endless wonders, having no notion of how he got here, a world in which he eats, sleeps, works, grows old, gets sick and dies, takes his comfort and ease, plays along with the game, watches TV, drinks his drink, laughs for all the world. As if his prostate were not growing cancerous, his arteries turning to chalk, his brain cells dying by the millions, as if the worms were not going to have him in no time at all. How does he make sense of that? Blaise Pascal, the great scientist and philosopher, he said once, I am terror-stricken before the silence of infinite space. I am terror-stricken at the thought of whatever awaits me in the future. And you know what? Can I, can I just be frank with you? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should be terrified. You should be terrified. If you're listening right now online, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't have assurance of salvation for eternity, you should be scared. You should be terrified. But if you know Christ... If you have saving faith, death is just, it's just a portal to something better, right? I mean, the real problem for us as Christians is not death. Death is just passage. It's dying. Dying is hard. As we suffer the inconveniences of this world and Sometimes dying is really painful. But death, death is passing on to something infinitely pleasurable and infinitely satisfying. If you have faith in Christ. I hope you know the Lord. I do. I don't got many sermons left here I hope you know the Lord and if you don't I mean I, I got a lot left to preach so you don't have to wait till the end <laughs> you can get saved right now put your faith in Christ and trust him he died for your sins he rose from the dead and you will too and live with him forever 
if you have faith in his finished work on the cross. Write this down as number three in your notes. A couple more things. We'll all be dead soon, Harvest Decatur. Therefore, number three, read your Bible. Read your Bible. How can you be so confident about this, Pastor Tony? How can you be so confident about death, about eternity, about Jesus? I'll tell you why. It's because I read my Bible. And if you have confidence, it's because you read your Bible too. And because you go to a church where they actually preach the Bible. There's a correlation there. So let's finish this up. Verse 9 is a transition and what Solomon does is he breaks the fourth wall and he just kind of steps outside of his writing and he starts talking about his writing in the third person. Some scholars have thought that, you know, Solomon is, this is actually a different author besides Solomon who's summing up what Solomon wrote. That might be true, but I'm actually inclined to, to think of this as more stylistic than that as Solomon in the third person now describing the things that he wrote. Moses does that in the Pentateuch sometimes, just as a corollary. And here's what Solomon says. He says, besides being wise, the preacher, that is me, I'm the Ecclesiastes, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many prophets, proverbs with great care. What Solomon is telling us here is that this preacher, he, he didn't just kind of slapdash, throw a bunch of sayings together. Oh, yeah, that's good. Let me grab some of that. Oh, yeah, we'll put this in there, too. No, he, there was a lot of care. There was a lot of consideration as he put together this whole book and dealt with many, many different topics. And I, I feel, I feel like we've really, throughout this series, we've honored that as we worked through this book, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Maybe sometimes you wanted to give up, but we made it. We honored, we honored the, the crafting of this book and the way that Solomon put it together. Look at verse 10. The preacher, Koheleth, sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. This is one of the great affirmations in the Bible of inspiration. Solomon's telling you right now that what he wrote was true. And they're not just delightful words. Some words are delightful, but not truthful. Some words are truthful, but not delightful. He's saying here that he wrote words that are both delightful and truthful. And he says, verse 11, these words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that he put together here. They are given by one shepherd, says Solomon. Not him. He's the preacher. He's not the shepherd. The shepherd here, is it capitalized in your Bible? If it's capitalized in your Bible, it should be, because that's talking about God. He's taking the words that God has given him. He's speaking of inspiration. God has given him these words, and he's put them together. He says these sayings are wise like goads. Goads that prick and nails that stick. That's what God's word is like. Goads. Y'all know what a goad is? Like a cattle prod, all right? An ancient cattle prod. A long stick, and you put a, put a metal point on the end of it, and you, you move the cattle. You move the animals where you want them to go, right? That's what God's Word does for us. It gets us moving in the right direction. But I don't want to, Lord. Get moving. Come on now. All right. And, and they're like nails that stick. They, they affix to our heart and to our soul. Truth. So we got it. I got it, Lord. It's stuck. It's true. It's real. I believe it more than I believe anything else in this world. That's what God's word does for us. Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture goads us into right thinking, into right action, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what scripture does. Old Testament, New Testament. And notice Solomon says the words of the wise are given by one shepherd, capital S. These words that Solomon wrote are God-given. If I can use the language of Paul, they are God-breathed. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these words. 
Why, in light of that, would we ever ignore them? Why would we ever dismiss them? Why would we ever let them collect dust on our bookshelf? Why would we ever go to a church that doesn't teach these truths? Verse 12. My son, this sounds like Proverbs, doesn't it? Bene, my son. My son, beware of anything beyond these. In other words, my son, be wary of anything beyond the words of the shepherd. Beware of anything that doesn't originate from God. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. And all the college students in the room said, Amen. I heard this last week that there are more than a million new books published every year. A million. How many of those are y'all going to read? Maybe those of you who are really aggressive, a couple dozen. Imagine what Solomon would say if he lived in our day and saw the, the books and the publishing houses and my bookshelf downstairs. Is it good to read books? Is it good to write books? Is it good to build big bookshelves to house the book? I hope so, because Sonia made me some great bookshelves. Yes, I think it's okay to read books. Yes, I think it's good to study. All truth is God's truth, right? Why wouldn't we study philosophy and chemistry and biology and geography and anatomy and physiology and thermodynamics? Why wouldn't we study those things? Here's the warning, though. There's a weariness to that. It's an endless pursuit. It's a black hole that will suck you into its vortex. And it can keep you, if you're not careful, from studying the one book that ultimately matters in this world. Y'all with me? That's what Solomon is warning here. Don't neglect the, neglect the words of the wise given by the shepherd in your pursuit of philosophy or physics or physiology. Here's a real temptation in our day, probably even more so than books. Don't watch gobs and gobs of television or YouTube on your smartphone and neglect the truth that's written here. Y'all with me? Don't do that. And then Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.7. He, he warns him about people who are always learning and never able to arrive to the knowledge of the truth. Always learn. You know people like that? Always studying. Always reading. Always thinking. But never really getting to the truth. There's some barrier there. Don't be like that. Don't make that mistake. And finally, the end of the matter. Here's the climactic conclusion of the book. The end of the matter, says Solomon, all has been heard. Here it is. Twelve chapters of content. All rolled into one. Here's the end. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Literally in Hebrew it says, for this is the whole of man. This is what man was created for, to do this. And notice the sequence here. I think the sequence is important. Fear and then keep. Everybody see that? Fear and then keep his commandments. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Michael Eaton says, conduct derives from worship. We worship and then we act. A knowledge of God leads to obedience, not vice versa. We don't obey God in order to fear him. We fear him. We worship him. We reverence him. And then we obey his commandments. Why? Why do we do that? Here's why. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Verse 14, write this down as a fourth and final point in your notes. 
We'll all be dead soon, Harvest Decatur. Therefore, fear your God and obey his commandments. Fear your God and obey his commandments. You know, for the bulk of my adult life, I have wrestled with what it means to fear God. Anybody else struggle with that? What does that mean, Lord? Because I read it in Proverbs. I read it it at the end of Ecclesiastes. This must be important. What does that mean to fear God? Does it mean to tremble before him in abject terror? Does it mean to respect him? Does it mean to be afraid of him? Does it mean to worship him? What does that mean? And here's why I struggle with it so much, because that's the Old Testament, right? In the New Testament, we have this statement by the Apostle John that perfect love casts out fear, right? So how does this jive with that? How does that fear jive with it? How do we harmonize those things? Should we fear God or shouldn't we fear God? If perfect love casts out fear, why do we fear God? I haven't got to the end of that yet. I'm still working on it, but I read something this week that helped me, and I want to help you. This is what Oswald Chambers said. He said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. That is so insightful. And if I can put those together, the, the exhortations of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the exhortation of 1 John, the perfect love casts out fear, here's how I would put them together. If you fear God, if you love God, if you're a recipient of God's love, you don't have to be afraid of anything else in this world. That is the all-consuming fear of your world, and it's a good kind of fear. And if you fear God, if you love God, if you're loved by him, you don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to be afraid of anything in this world. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't. You don't have to be afraid of eternity. You don't have to be afraid or terror-stricken before the silence of infinite space. Because at death, you're going to go home into the presence of the Lord and you're going to await your bodily resurrection where you will live with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And if we fear him, we don't have to fear anything else. That's how I put that together. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of this world. You don't have to fear anything if you fear God. So Solomon says, here's the end of the matter. Here it is. Go after this. Fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And then he says this, and I'll be honest, it kind of leaves us with a bit of a sour note at the end of the book. You know, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Okay, got it, Lord. I'll do my best, Lord. Right? How many of y'all are feeling, yes, I'll try, Lord. I'm going to really try. But boy, I make mistakes. Don't you? Or maybe it's just me. Robert Murray McShane, the famous Scottish preacher, he said, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. <laughs> that's, that's my prayer. But look at verse 14. This is sobering. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every emphasis on every secret thing whether good or evil. Everything, Lord, every, yes, everything, every secret thing, every secret thought in my mind, every evil concept in my heart, everything, Lord, all of it, you're going to judge me for? Yes, boy, that's disheartening. 
I mean, who's who's going to pass that test at the end of time? Who's going to stand before the Lord in the final judgment and pass muster with that kind of examination? Can anybody pass a test like that? Is there anybody who's lived a perfect life? Is there anybody who's even, their secret thoughts are sinless and perfect? There's a great moment in the book of Revelation in chapter 5. Whereas John's writing, he's, he's describing this scroll that's given by God. And as they receive this scroll, the, this angel shouts, who is worthy to open up the scroll? Who's worthy? And I mean, you could just imagine people looking around like, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me, not even the angels. And John tells us in that passage that he even starts to weep. There's nobody worthy. There's nobody worthy. Nobody can stand before God as a righteous person. We are holy unholy before God. But then one of the elders turns to John and he says, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of Jesse has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And after that, in Revelation 5, it's, it's, it's great. They just start singing. You know, I kind of wonder in eternity if we're just going to start singing randomly. They start singing this song, and they sing to this lion of the tribe of Judy, Judah, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. The reality is that if we stand before the Lord and we get judged according to what we've done, we all stand condemned. Guilty, 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 right? But there is one who stands before the Lord and God says, innocent. And because we stand with him, he looks at us and he says, your sins have been paid. You've been redeemed by the one who was slain, by the lion of the tribe of Judah. We are saved. And our faith in him makes it possible for us to escape judgment. We don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear judgment. You know why? Jesus Christ, our Savior. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. And even though we'll die, unless Christ comes before then, even though we'll die, we will live forever in his presence. We will be raised as he was raised from the dead. Pray with me, would you? In the quietness of your own soul right now. Would you express your gratitude to Jesus Christ, your Savior? Thank you, Jesus. Praise him. He is worthy. If you can, try to remember 
right now, the day of your salvation. Maybe for some of you, it's a little hazy. When did you first believe? Praise God for that day. Tell the Lord now you still believe. You love him, you fear him. You want to live your life for him. Offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Offer up the days that you have left on this world. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death that saves us. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. Yes, Lord, we will age. We will die. But we will live eternally. And Lord, it's, it's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because we've obeyed your commandments. We haven't. We failed. It's because of your work on our behalf. It's because you are a ransom for sin. You're our redeemer. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation provided to us. Thank you for this church, the bride of Christ. We're committed to you, Lord. We're committed to the gospel. We're committed to your word. We want to live our lives in obedience to you, Lord. Help us to do that. Help us to be as holy as saved sinners can be. Lord, we, we await the day of your return. Whether we're alive when it happens or whether our bodies are buried in the ground, we will be raised to new life. We will put the sorrows of this world behind us. We will partake of the tree of life forever. We will worship in your presence forever. It's going to be so good, Lord. Amen. Amen.